0: What's up, everybody? This is Pastor James. Welcome back to the Midweek Bible Study. We are going to finish up Matthew chapter 27 today, and we will talk about the death of Jesus along with his burial and the guarding of the tomb. So let's get started so we can finish this chapter. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 56. Let's read together. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. About 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, limo sabachani which means my god my god why have you abandoned me some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet elijah and one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink but the rest said wait let's see whether elijah comes to save him then jesus shouted again and he released his spirit at that moment the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two From top to bottom, the earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. They said this man truly was the Son of God. And many women who had come from Galilee with Jesus to care for him were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. All right, so let's talk about the darkness that fell as Jesus is on the cross. Now, in our translation, we see that it lasted about three hours, and it lasted from about noon until 3 p.m. It is important to remember that Jesus was on the cross for about six hours that day, And we get that from the Gospel of Mark. Like, we don't see how long he was on the cross in Matthew, but in Mark we can pull that information. And it seems that he was raised up on the cross at about 9 a.m. that morning, and he died around 3 p.m. on that same day. And it is important to note that the three-hour window is much longer than uh, of darkness, that is, from 12 to 3. That darkness... Lasted much longer than any eclipse that could have uh, lasted. Uh, We've never had a solar eclipse to last more than just a few minutes. But for whatever reason, darkness fell on this uh, for three hours. And and it's safe to say that the darkness was greater. It was greater than cloud coverage. It was greater than any kind of solar eclipse that outer space could accomplish. Um, This was not something that physically, uh, worldly, could have taken place, but it was much more supernatural, much more spiritual, and it was from God. And one of the things, uh, because I'm doing this on Thursday morning today, um, typically I record this Bible study before our Wednesday night discussion, but last night, you know, uh, one of the things that we were talking about, and and different people just kind of chime in during our Bible study, which is always fun, because people see things differently, and and that always gives us different perspective and, and a lot better information. Um, but one of the things that we talked about last night was how, <clears throat> you know, when you look at light representing God and goodness and, and truth, and darkness representing evil and Satan and, and sin, and, and then in this moment for this three-hour period, it, it's almost like God is covering everything that is going on in darkness. He does not approve of the mocking of jesus the death of jesus uh the way that he is being treated <clears throat> it is all part of god's plan but at the same time what was happening to him was done with evil intent even though it was part of god's plan to save mankind and it was very much a supernatural um thing and, and this darkness was also wrote about by a secular roman historian fligon uh, that's P-H-L-E-G-O-N. And he wrote of an extraordinary solar eclipse and earthquake happening the same time as the crucifixion. So we don't just have biblical evidence of this. We also have secular evidence of this written about in different places. And so, you know, so many people try to question Scripture, try to question the legitimacy and the truth of, of Scripture. But so many other venues of records that we have verify the fact that jesus existed the fact that jesus performed miracles the fact that jesus hung on the cross all the things that happened while jesus was hanging on the cross and the fact that jesus was resurrected from the dead there are multiple venues of information that we have affirming that not just the bible so that is very reassuring uh, it should build your confidence. It should build your faith to know that Scripture is true, that, that it was not distorted, it was not taken out of context, but the fact that it has maintained its truth and integrity. Now, while Jesus is on the cross, and as the darkness has set in, Jesus also cried out, Eli, Eli, Lima, sabachthani." And, and as you can imagine, <clears throat> a man that had been beaten within an inch of his life because Jesus was, he had lost a lot of blood. Uh, he had been hanging on the cross for three hours up to this point, so sometime, and, and we're probably getting up to the fact that he's been hanging on the cross for about five hours by this time, um, he's probably not able to clearly speak or call out with a strong, loud voice. Like He's crying out, he, He's he's speaking, and this is really the first time in six hours that Jesus has said anything. And so as he cries out, he's probably not doing it very clearly. And just to understand, like Jesus would have had to lift himself up. So he would have had to put all the pressure on his feet with the nails driven through his feet to lift himself up in order to get enough breath to even speak. And so it would have been excruciatingly painful to do that and as he's crying out, he was misunderstood by the people who were around him, and they were—they thought he was crying out for Elijah to come save him. And and the people of Israel had a great respect for Elijah because Elijah was a was a, an amazing prophet. He did more miracles than any other prophet, and also Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire, so he never experienced death. And they fully expected Elijah to return. So it was interesting that um, that the people are very curious as to whether or not Elisha is going to come and save him because they've been challenging Jesus to ask God to save him and, and you know if you're the son of God then take yourself off the cross and blah 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 but <clears throat> some theologians think that perhaps another reason why Jesus was misunderstood is because the statement Eli Eli Lima is Hebrew and it's not Greek and most of Everything that was going on during this time was done in Greek, like the Romans spoke Greek. Probably a lot of the Israelites by this point had been occupied by uh, the Romans uh, were speaking Greek by this time, and they were probably bilingual. But everything that we see in the New Testament is written in Greek, and um, it just seems like that was kind of the the chosen language of the day that we have but in this moment Jesus cries out in Hebrew and this is the first time we see a Hebrew statement so it could have been misunderstood because the people were used to hearing Greek and in this moment they hear Hebrew and they may not have caught everything that Jesus was trying to say Um, also it is interesting that this is the only time in Matthew Mark or the Gospel of Luke that Jesus does not refer to God as the Father or his Father. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rather than Father or my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that's pretty interesting too. That the fact that there's a lot of things going on um, during this moment. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's suffering a great deal of pain. He's getting ready to relinquish his spirit. The people are mocking him. He, he's enduring excruciating pain. He's enduring excruciating, um, uh, you know, ridicule from the crowds. He, he he's dealing with a lot. He's trying to fulfill so much scripture, even up to the point of his death. And in this moment, the greatest spiritual transaction to ever take place was was taking place at this time. And Jesus asked God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? And and Jesus knew no sin, but he became all of humanity's sin in this moment. God poured out his wrath on Christ so that our sins could be atoned for. And this is why we have forgiveness of sin, because of this moment when Jesus cries us out. And we talked a lot about this last night because people were very curious as to Why would God turn away from Christ? Because Christ was sinless. But from what we believe as Christians, this is the moment that all of the world's sin was put on Christ. And so this is the first time in all of creation that Christ has experienced separation from God. You know, so many times we think about eternity being this forward thing, like, like we're looking forward to eternity. But time does not apply to God. And so when it comes to God... There has already been eternity and there always will be eternity. Time does not apply to him. So for an eternity already, before time ever began, before you could even count it, before you can measure it, Jesus has already spent an eternity with God. And for the first time in forever, okay, Jesus had never experienced separation from the Father. But in this moment... We believe that as the sin of the world was put on Jesus, and he dies in our place, that God turned away from him in this moment, and this is when Jesus cries out. So this very important spiritual transaction is taking place, and this is probably, this is definitely the most excruciating thing for Jesus to endure, is the fact that he is separated from the Father for the first time in eternity. And that's hard for us to understand, because you and I we were born into sin, like we've been separated from the Father from the very beginning and if you can imagine what it's like to to be saved to receive salvation and to know how amazing and freeing and uh how great of a feeling that is in our lives, Jesus has never experienced that because he's always been one with the Father, but in this moment he he knew God better than we ever have. He's he's seen him. He's spoken with him. He has created all things with him. And in this moment, you know, God is uh is is apart from him. And that's the first time he's ever experienced that. And that would be the most excruciating thing Jesus endured on this day. You know, as people, we like to focus on the physical suffering that Jesus endured, but really the spiritual suffering of being separated from the Father was probably uh, or most definitely the most difficult thing for him to endure in this moment. All right? So as Jesus shouts once again, he releases his spirit, and, and after being beaten and losing a lot of blood and hanging on the cross, it is so important to remember that Jesus does not die against his will, but he freely relinquishes his will in this moment. And even after uh, after all this stuff, Jesus is willingly dying. He's willingly giving up his life. And that's so important for us to remember that his life was not taken against his will, but he gave it up freely. Now, in the same moment as Jesus dies, now this is super important too because this is very intricate to our faith as believers in Christ and to our prayer life. But in this same moment, the veil in the temple was torn into two pieces from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks split apart. <clears throat> and we hear about this um, veil being torn in the temple from top to bottom. And I don't know if you've ever thought about like how we know that information because, or how even the disciples would have known that information because in the temple, you weren't allowed to go in unless you were a priest and you were going in to do your priestly duties. Most people were just not allowed to go into the temple and minister before the Lord. That was a job specifically um, set aside for the priest to do. But if you look in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it talks about many of the priests who were obedient to the faith early on. And if you can imagine being a priest and serving in the temple and you're used to going into the temple and you're having to purify yourself and cleanse yourself because if you don't, um, it was very much understood that the Lord would strike strike you dead if you did not purify yourself and do things in the right way whenever you went in. So they were very careful to do that. And then when you go into the temple and you do your duties, there's this massive curtain that's hanging between the sanctuary which is considered the holy place and then the most holy place behind the curtain where the where the um the ark of the covenant is going to be and so that is a very important place because only one person the high priest was allowed to go in there once a year and there was a great deal of preparation that had to be done in order for him to be cleansed and purified, to enter in, to offer the sacrifices, to cleanse the people of Israel from their sin. So, as the temple, as the curtain is torn from top to bottom, and guys, I just want you to understand, this is not like some like little household window curtain that we're talking about. You're talking about something that that would have been, and I'm just... I'm. Don't quote me on this, but I'm giving you an estimation uh, or a guesstimation in this moment. But from what I can recall, the curtain is like 20 to 30 feet tall, and it's as wide as the temple was. And I can't remember how wide the temple is off the top of my head, but from my understanding, the curtain was also l- like 12 inches thick. It was like a foot thick. And so you're not talking about something that somebody could just go in and tear with their hands. I mean, this would have been an incredible, miraculous thing for this curtain to all of a sudden just be torn in two from top to bottom. And when you look at the priest, if Acts chapter 6, verse 7 is correct, which we believe it's 100% correct that many of the priests were obedient to the faith of, of following Christ in the early church, probably the reason is is because they were the ones who saw the temple curtain torn in two. For the first time, they saw, and, and you don't realize this, but many priests would live their whole lives and never see the Holy of Holies. They would never be chosen to go back and stand before the Ark of the Covenant and offer that sacrifice. So you could be a priest your whole life and never go into the Holy of Holies. So all these priests go into the temple and they see the curtain torn in two and they are 100% convinced that Jesus was the Son of God because now the Holy of Holies is exposed and anyone can see and anyone can go through there. And that would have been one of the most um, convincing things for the priests to put their faith in Christ. Now, it was the spiritual act of God to remove that curtain And expose the holy place. And it was a message saying that people have direct access to God now because of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus was the final sacrifice opening the way for all men to have access with Jesus as their high priest and representative at God's right hand. That's so important to our faith. And I really hope you guys realize that and take that and that you don't take your prayer life for granted and neglect your prayer life. But know that. Man, Jesus died on the cross so that you could have a prayer life and have direct access to God. So as Jesus dies, the veil in the temple is torn. We just talked about that. But also there's some other things going on. The earth is shaking. Rocks are splitting apart. Um, and so the fact that nature, nature has been disrupted by the death of the Son of God, um, you have to understand that in this moment there are spiritual things happening like the veil in the in the Temple being torn And then there's also physical earthly things happening Where where nature is crying out in this moment And if you remember on Palm Sunday When Jesus is going into the city of Jerusalem And the people of Israel are shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord And the religious leaders are, are uh, rebuking Jesus Telling him, stop these people Don't allow them to say this And Jesus said, surely I tell you That if these people don't say it The rocks and the trees would cry it out And so as Jesus hung on the cross and died on the cross and and he suffered and bled and died, not only is God displaying and affirming that Christ was truly the Son of God by allowing all these spiritual things to happen, but even all of nature is crying out. They are crying out because the Son of God has been killed and, and his life has been snuffed out because of the sin of the world. And so... All of creation is crying out and affirming that Jesus was truly the Son of God. Jesus never had to defend himself. He never had to say a word. He did what he was supposed to do. And because of that, God and all of creation cries out that he is the Messiah. He is truly the Son of God. And and then Matthew, one interesting thing I want to finish up this passage with is Matthew tells us of graves opening up and righteous people who had died being brought back to life, and appearing to many people in Jerusalem. And we only see this in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's kind of frustrating because for, for me, I don't know why, that's just really interesting to think like, okay, what was all that about? Uh, what was the purpose? Why, why did God want to do that? And Matthew really doesn't give us a whole lot of information about it. Uh, once again, Matthew gives us very small details about things that happened, he tells us they happened, but he doesn't give a lot of detail about it. And I would love to know more about that, like what these people did, what these people said, where, okay, like um, how long did they stay alive? Uh, Did they go back to their grave and, and lay back down and then they were dead again? Like what was all that about? So it's sometimes it's frustrating to read scripture when you read things like that and then you don't get a whole lot of information about it. It just kind of gives you a cliffhanger and you don't really have any resolution to it or finality to it, but um, I I would love to know more about it. I'm sure some of you may be interested in it and some of you may not care, but uh, all these things that are happening are enough for the officer and the soldiers who are at the crucifixion making sure that his death was done and his sentence was carried out, uh, that they were convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, I don't know about you, but witnessing these things, witnessing earthquakes and darkness and chaos and rocks splitting and tombs opening up would be, man, that would be terrifying. And so these men are 100% convinced that Jesus was truly the Son of God. All right, so let's move on to chapter 27, verses 57 to 61 and talk about the burial of Jesus. It says, As evening approached Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own tomb, which had been carved out of rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. Both Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting across from the tomb and watching. All right, so... This act is definitely worth talking about. Um, It's really short, but you have to remember that the Romans were notorious for leaving the bodies of the crucified people on the cross to rot and be eaten by wild animals, and it was a way of reminding the people not to uh, defy the Romans or cross them in any way, and they could leave a body up for a long amount of time, and for a Jewish person, that would be horrifying. I mean, to be displayed... High up for everyone to see your nakedness would have been terrifying. It would have been shaming uh, to die that death, uh, to suffer like they did would be terrifying. And then to not be buried uh, for the potentiality of your body to just hang there and be eaten by wild animals and not to be buried properly would have been terrifying, even for us today. um, You know, as far as like we don't have any strong customs, but just the idea of. Of our bodies being, uh, you know, just brutalized like that and, and left out, and not really any finality coming of it, would be really hard for us to deal with. But the Romans also uh, were gracious enough to give bodies back to relatives and friends to be buried. Um, in their customary fashion at certain times. And because of the Passover season that was on hand as this was going on, uh, they were very much willing to give, uh, bring the bodies down because they didn't want the bodies on display because they didn't want to disrupt the peace. And they knew they could get away with it certain times, but for special times like the Passover, um, it was not a good time to really make an example out of people. So they bring Jesus' body down. They give it to Joseph, this wealthy man who had become a follower of Jesus. And uh, Joseph takes him and wraps him in cloth and puts him in a tomb uh, carved out of rock. Uh, And so he takes care of Jesus' body. And this is kind of like his final gift. And as we're talking about the burial of Jesus, there's some really great parallels in this passage that I want to bring to mind so that you guys can see this. Um, So when Jesus was born, he came into the world naked like all babies do. And when he died, he was naked. You know, we forget about that a lot, but he was hung on the cross and his clothes and garments were divided up among the officers or the Roman soldiers who was gambling over his clothes and took them. So he came into the world naked. He died naked. Uh, When he was born, he was wrapped in strips of cloth, and when he died, he was wrapped in cloth. When he was born, he was laid in a manger, and that's... A lot of times, hard for us to imagine what that means because we think of mangers as wooden troughs and barns that are made out of wood. But in this time, uh, the the manger or the uh, the stable would not have been this wooden structure. But it probably would have been a cave like structure or some type of thing built out of stone because that's what they had plenty of materials with stone materials. So. It could have been carved out of stone. It would have been made of stone. But anyways, uh, even inside of this stable, the manger would not have been a wooden trough, but it would have been a a groove that would have been carved out of stone in the floor. And so basically just like a trench almost that was uh, carved out. And that's where they would pour the food. So Jesus was laid in a manger. He was laid in the trough wrapped in strips of cloth. And so as Jesus dies as a man... Um, he's wrapped in cloth And then he's put in a tomb That's carved out of stone And he's laid there uh, And one of the things That uh, you have to see And I was reading this This past week And kind of watching some videos And different stuff But one of the things I thought was interesting Is is that someone said That Jesus was born Of a virgin womb And laid in a virgin tomb And so this tomb Was brand new It, it was carved out And And Joseph gives Jesus his tomb and it would have been expensive it was a rich man's tomb for you to have something like that to be to be buried in a stone cave and 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 that was uh it was neat to see that Jesus was born of a virgin womb and laid in a virgin tomb that he he is almost exiting the same way that he came in um his birth was not a glorious birth his death was not a glorious death it it was very It would have been a very uncomfortable, uh, painful day, the day that he was born uh, for his parents and for him. It would have been very uncomfortable. And then at the same time, his death was very uncomfortable. And it was not ideal. Okay, And so even his family and his friends were not around for his burial. But a a rich man who had become his follower was the one who came and took care of his body. So um, then... Uh, as Jesus is born, also, one of the last things is that, that there are some rich, uh, these wise men who come with these great, amazing, expensive gifts, and then at his death, you have this rich man who gives him his last gift, this this virgin or unused tomb that would have been very expensive. So there's a lot of similarities um, in this, and, and I just think it's cool and worth mentioning, you know, just kind of think about. so. Let's read this last section, and then we'll be done today. This is Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 66, and we'll talk about the guards at the tomb. So the next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate, and they told him, Sir, we remember that deceiver once said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise again from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards and secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and posted guards to protect it. Alright, so just a few things I want to bring notes to about this passage. Once again, you see these uh, religious leaders breaking their own laws so that they could get their agendas done. They go to Pilate on the Sabbath to conduct business with him, which broke the rules of the Sabbath. And this was one of the things that they regularly chastised Jesus about, was breaking the rules of the Sabbath. And it's also interesting that the religious leaders remember that Jesus had said that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. They were very aware of all the things that Jesus said, and they were listening because they were trying to find fault in him but the disciples had forgotten about it. So so the religious leaders were very much aware. He said he was gonna be raised on the third day. The disciples had forgotten all about it. They weren't even thinking about it. All right, they, they saw their Lord uh, taken away. They know that he was dead. And so they basically have returned to their normal lives after this point, just hoping that they're probably not gonna be uh, killed as well. And so the religious leaders are very much aware. He said he was gonna be raised from the dead. The disciples forget all about it and the religious leaders were thoroughly convinced that Jesus was dead. Now that's super important because no one questioned this at all. You have to notice that the religious leaders did not go to Pilate and say, "We're worried that he's not really dead and that he's going to pretend to be back to life." They say, "No, were worried that they were going to steal his body and then say, oh, he was resurrected and then lie about it. So they, everyone seems to be thoroughly convinced. The religious leaders, the disciples, uh, Pilate, the, the Roman guards, everybody seemed to be very convinced that Jesus is dead in this. And so from a historical perspective, it's impossible to deny Christ what he did on the cross. You cannot look and say, well, he didn't really die or he didn't really do this, or he didn't really do that. We have it in records, both historically and biblically, that he died on the cross. I mean, he suffered an excruciating death. He was laid in the tomb. And then we have it from historical and secular records that he was raised from the dead, that he was brought out of the tomb, that he appeared to many, many people. And uh, it, it's the real question is: is, do you accept it as truth? And do you accept the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins to have access to God? Or do you still doubt? A lot of people really doubt. They have a hard time accepting this as truth. And I understand why they would have a hard time accepting it as truth. But in reality, we have to accept it as truth. In order to truly be where we need to be with Jesus, we have to accept this as truth. And we have more than enough reason to accept it as truth. All right, Let me pray with you and I'll let you go. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day and this time we have together. I pray that you would be with us and guide us in all we do. Help us to serve you. Help us to live for you. And Lord, help us to have faith and to believe in all these things. To trust and know that your word is true, that you are true, and that God, you've done everything that you always said that you would do. And even up until the very end, you were fulfilling passages of scripture. You were fulfilling prophecies. You were quoting passages of scripture, even on the cross. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to believe and trust in you because you are more than able to do everything you've always said that you will do and could do. And so, Lord, we put our trust and faith in you. Help us to believe and have faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for tuning in for another week. We love you. We're praying for you and hope to see you on campus this weekend. Have a great week.